0: Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who was promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word.
1: Lord our God is a sun and shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. O Lord our God, how blessed is the man who trusts in thee, who trusts in thee. May the Lord God Almighty, the Father, Son, and Spirit be honored today. Thank you, Pastor Gerald and the elders, once again for your grace. And thank you, my church family, for your deep kindnesses toward me, Pam, and our seas. And happy Father's Day to all of you fathers who are out there. I hope someone else is doing the grilling today. (laughs) Let us pray and look together at Hebrews chapter 10 again. Father, grant us now your grace to hear your word. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may see wondrous things out of your law, that we may know the hope that we have, the riches among the saints, the power toward us who believe. Would you give us that spirit of knowledge in you, that you may work in us what is pleasing in your sight. You may increase us in the knowledge of God. You would make us to know your will and to have joy in it. Do it so that your name is magnified in every household in Oak Park, so that the name of Jesus might be known where right now there is no evidence, no name of Jesus there. Please raise up from among us people who will continue to answer the call to go to the nations. Now, bless now that there might be power of the Spirit in preaching and in hearing. Draw someone to yourself today. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Facing unjust laws and a biased legal system, a brutal police force and threats from the KKK, On the first of the 115-day Montgomery bus boycott of 1955 to 1956, nearly 40,000 African-Americans, bus riders, boycotted riding buses. The city of Montgomery, Alabama refused to give in to the demand of the protesters who, after a while, wanted more than first-come, 1st first serve seating, the hiring of African-American drivers, and courteous treatment. The protesters wanted integration. And eventually, the courts would make it happen. In order to maintain the protest until the demands of righteousness were met, Montgomery's now 75% missing ridership made use of carpools. The city's African-American taxi drivers charged only 10 cents per ride, the same price as bus fare for African-American riders, and the remaining absentees chose to walk rather than ride. People who had no business walking due to dependency on a cane or other like issues made it through the boycott. Those who needed assistance with the funds for taxi fares made it. Those working at odd hours made it. Those coming from long distances made it. Although it was not easy for many of the former riders, and some had great challenges to make it to the end of the boycott, eventually they did see the integration of the bus system as they all worked together to make sure that in their choice to strive for what was right, that everyone had a means to get to their destinations and no one was left behind in the process as a believer When we face worldviews biased against us in the workplace, a brutal media and TV culture that mocks our faith at almost every turn and personal threats to your choices to maintain Christian personal and family values, getting to the end of the journey safely cannot be a singular effort or the effort of your immediate family and marriage alone. While some of you have the strength to endure almost any challenge or trial as a believer, others do not, for they have not yet had the maturing experiences, or they simply do not have the survival constitution the Lord has so graciously given to you. Yet, salvation, as we will see, is not about me making sure that I get to glory and gain reward without equal or greater regard for all of you. As the Hebrews writer will show, salvation in the face of persecution is not about me or you singular standing on the truth of Christ and staring down the difficulties of our faith. Instead, Salvation is about each of us being holding the truth of Christ and also being responsible to see that all of us especially those struggling in their faith that all of us get to the presence of God together. So let's look at four things the Hebrew writer says to us about getting to the presence of God together. First, The bodily and priestly work of Christ opens the only way for us to get to the presence of God. Again, it says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. The writer returns to two truths carried throughout the book of Hebrews. The first being that Jesus has done something in his physical human body for us. That is, by giving his body in the plan of redemption, his physical body becomes the living pictorial embodiment of the work he has done to help us draw near to God. Jesus' flesh was destroyed, opening a new way for us to get to God apart going through, from going through the temple on the Day of Atonement. In Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus dies, the veil that stood between the holy place in the temple and the holiest of all, also known as the holy of holies, ripped in two from top to bottom, signifying that God is the one who tore it and God is the one providing access to his very presence apart from the ironic priest. The writer to the Hebrews goes even further to recognize that getting behind the earthly veil is one thing. But getting to go behind the veil that blocks us to the presence of God in heaven is quite another thing. Jesus does not just symbolize, but is that veil between us and the Holy God, and he tears open away into the very presence of God by means of his death on the cross. The second work the author reviews is that of the Melchizedekian priest mediating blessing upon the stewardship over God's house. Going back to chapter 3, the writer references Jesus being over the house of God rather than being a servant like Moses. That son priest over the house of God has all the rights and privileges that sons had over their father's fields of ownership, including all of the inheritance rights. Jesus is the heir to all of the creation and riches of God the Father, and we are one with he who will share in all of these things. This is certain. The son priest over God's house mediates salvation for us, making access to God by Jesus being that embodied torn curtain so that we can go past the altar into the holy of holies, into the very face of God right now spiritually and invisibly and in the future to the fullest proximate and corporal senses. These are some incredible promises the writer speaks of of the truths of this passage that are huge. John Calvin, and by the way, it's always good to quote John Calvin in a a sermon, and I'm going to quote him three times in this sermon, so just get ready for it. On this passage, John Calvin, the Reformer, writes, quote, As the veil covered the recesses of the sanctuary and yet afforded entrance there, so the divinity, though hid in the flesh of Christ, yet leads us even into heaven. Nor can anyone find God except he to whom the man Christ becomes the door and the way. Thus we are reminded that Christ's glory is not to be estimated according to the external appearance of his flesh, nor is his flesh to be despised because it conceals as a veil the majesty of God, while it is also that which conducts us to the enjoyment of the good things of God. Unquote. The bodily and priestly work of Christ opens the way for us to get to the presence of God together. Second, the ceremonial purity work of Christ ritually cleanses us so that we can get to the presence of God together. In verse 19, the issue is having confidence to enter the holy places into the very presence of God. In verse 22, we carry over the same issue. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near? Draw near to what? Draw near to enter the holy places to which one could not draw any closer under the Old Covenant law because only the Aaronic priests could go into the presence of God on the Day of Atonement annually. The writer says for us to draw near to enter the holy places with a true heart and full assurance not apostatizing from Jesus, but finding him able to complete what he started in us. So how are we qualified to draw near if we're not from the Aaronic priesthood? Ceremonially, we have been cleansed by Christ. We do not have to worry about spot, blemish, or even wrinkle, as those of the old covenant did with their sacrifices. We do not concern ourselves with meeting external standards of ritual purity, whether those be the cleanliness needed by lepers, those with bodily discharges, or those touching dead things, according to the Old Testament law, or whether it be for those seeking to meet additional standards added by Jewish rabbis to ensure the practice of the legal code in every affair of life. Our hearts become true because they have been sprinkled. The sprinkling is a comparative reference to the sprinkling of the furniture of the tabernacle on the approach to the Holy of Holies and the sprinkling of the high priest with blood so that he could enter into the presence of God. Yet it is not furniture or the priestly garments that are sprinkled so as to be cleansed. It is our hearts says the writer, and what we are cleansed from is an evil conscience. This is strong language. What stands in the way of our approach to God's very presence, both here in prayer and in worship, and later in heaven, is a depraved conscience. Uncleansed, it would keep us from ever meeting with God, But no one has ever sprinkled blood literally on my heart or your heart to cleanse it from evil so that my conscience can tell me the right things to do before God. Instead... The blood of Jesus or the death of Jesus Christ for us has cleansed away the reign of the evil conscience. It has cleansed away our evil disposition, our motives, intentions and goals and volition. The cleansing is ceremonial and it is mysterious. The cleansing of our bodies comes as a result of that same justifying work of Christ. So that there is no confusion on the water reference in this verse, I again appeal to the reformer who was working on 10 cylinders when he was looking at this passage. He again writes, what follows our bodies washed with pure water is generally understood of baptism, but it seems to me more probable that the writer alludes to the ancient ceremonies of the law, and so by water he designates the Spirit of God according to what is said by Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, Ezekiel 36.25. The reformer goes on to say, The meaning is that we are made partakers of Christ if we come to him sanctified in body and soul. And yet that this sanctification is not what consists in a visible parade of ceremonies. But that it is from faith, pure conscience, and is that cleanliness of soul and body which flows from and is affected by the spirit of God. So the writer exhorts the faithful to cleanse themselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit since they have been adopted by God as his children, unquote. I, like you... Get a big smile at the Febreze nose-blind commercials, whether that is of a car that smells like one big dog, or a kitchen that smells like a fish market, or the house that smells like one great big cat condo and litter box. We do get used to smells that are actually repugnant to others, smells they immediately notice with a fresh set of nostrils. Those commercials helped me understand how it was that as a teen boy, I was so oblivious to my own locker room nose blindness, but that as a parent, I was painfully aware of my own teen son's athletic aromas. (laughs) Whereas my mother was very subtle in saying something like, don't you sleep more comfortably if you shower at night? Pam and I just said, as soon as you get home, you need to shower before you do anything else. They were just too overcome with pubescent day in deal failure to even think about sitting down to, with us to a meal to enjoy our meal together. Christ has taken care of heart blindness for us and done so in a way that no external cleansing could do so that we can sit down in the Holy God's presence and enjoy Him without Him saying, You go get your evil heart away from me. Christ has cleansed us ceremonially so that we can enter the presence of God and so that we can all enter it together. Third, the complete faithfulness of Christ sustains us so that we can get to the presence of God together. I like the simplicity of verse 23. Again, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It simply calls us to hold fast the confession of our hope, and it does that on the basis of, quote, he who promised is faithful. Again, the issue is the same. The confession of our hope. Our hope of what? our hope of entering the holy places, our hope of entering into the very presence of God. Salvation does not end here. We have confessed that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that he is the only means for satisfying the wrath of God against our sin and the only way to get into the presence of God the Father Almighty. Nirvana, by the way, reincarnation and purgatory do not have such offers because they do not address God's wrath against sin for those of you who are thinking about those and they are not real. Our confession trusts that on the third day he rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. Well, how do we know that our confession is not just some Ponzi scheme or not just us buying some religious magic beans or a spiritual deed to the Brooklyn Bridge? We know because Christ is faithful. And we sing this here all the time, your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness, I'm still in your hands, this is my confidence, you've never Failed me yet. For some of us, the problem of trusting Christ when the pressure is on to tone down or drop Jesus is that others have made promises to be there for us but have left us holding the bag. For whatever reasons, this one didn't come through, that one didn't come through, they didn't come through. If it was a parent, The pain is especially acute because as a child you had nowhere else to go and maybe no one else with whom to properly process the loss, the letdown, or abandonment. This then colors all talk of God our Father being faithful. Where was God then? You may be asking. I think of all the Victims. the recent report of the Southern Baptist Convention Task Force on sexual abuse in the church, all the victims that it uncovered. Unfortunately, the report shows that many churches covered up or simply did not address allegations, that they abused church autonomy and the right to religious privacy, and they even passed on some of the abusers to other churches and ministries. Now, I am certain that our staff and elders would not do that here, but because of the gospel, we would involve the state to address a crime against the state in line with Romans chapter 13, and that we would compassionately and affirmingly support the victim and the victim's family, the abuser's family, and that we would all out grieve, lament, and while also holding to holy standards of righteousness. But even in churches where such care and accountability has not happened. That does not mean that God was not there. Your existence and presence here today shows that although people were letting you down in great ways, Jesus was not. He never will fail us because he cannot fail us. He does not suffer from our limitations. He is not lazy, weak, cowardly, absent-minded, short on funds, or swayed by crowds, or a bully, or a better offer. He does not tear his ACL when your championship is on the line. (laughs) But he also does not override every ounce of our free will so that we can only do good. We have to make choices in order to be human and in order to cultivate virtue. You enjoy such freedoms as we all do when everyone is using their freedom for good. When others do not use their freedom for good, however, the Lord is still there holding his promise and holding us in his promise at the same time. He has never failed us, and he will never fail us. He is completely faithful, and that same faithful Jesus is the one who will get us to the very presence of God together. Finally, The soon return of Christ informs the community life needed to get to the presence of God together. Look at verses 24 and 25 again and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you hear the corporate emphasis in those verses? It's the same corporate emphasis that has run from 19 down to 25. So verses 24 to 25 assume some things. First of all, they assume that we see ourselves as members of a body. The writer does not go into the mysterious union in which we are united invisibly and spiritually to one another in Christ on the basis of the eternal working of Christ, even though I am certain that this is part of the subtext of the work of the Son over God's house, which we are, he says in Hebrews 3. Yet the emphasis in this passage on brothers, we, us, are together and one another versus the some who do not assemble together in fear of being persecuted shows that a corporate approach to Christ is in mind in this passage. Yes, yes, you will get your individual face-to-face time with Jesus I know you have 1,000 questions to ask him about this life, and you do not even want to think about waiting in line in eternity while he answers someone else's questions, questions that you down here would think are stupid and less significant than your questions. (laughs) However, Even that is a misnomer for all of our questions and all of our present earthly disappointments will be addressed in the first nanosecond that we see the joyous glory of Jesus' loving face. As soon as we see him, all questions will be answered. Remember too, however, that we are not just individual believers and Christian families striving for and striding toward glory. We are a bride, a flock, a temple, A chosen race, a royal priesthood and kingdom of priests, one new man, and a body that Christ has saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The corporate images for us as believers are just as important as labels like born again, redeemed, elect, and regenerated. This passage also assumes that many of us practice loving people with the love of Christ and, to, and do good toward others in the model of Christ, and that we therefore would know how to encourage all fellow believers to do the same, that we would know how to stir one another to love and good works. These verses are not waiting on people with the gift of encouragement to act alone. These verses are looking for each one of us to be a cheering squad for everyone else. They're looking for each one of us to wave the towel and root for everyone else. Like those standing on the sidelines as people run the Chicago Marathon and they're approaching mile 20. When it is burning in the legs and back and arms and chest and lungs, those people are on the sidelines with their towels to spur you on to the finish. That is the task that we each have when living for Jesus becomes too hard for someone else in this body. That is a task that we have, and it is not at that time that we should stand by and watch in shock or silence. It is time for us to get in there with both feet and say, we can do this. I know we can do this. Because every time someone here has a baby or goes into surgery or there's a death in the family, we are quick to hop into action. We have meal calendars for the new mom that will last her until the next child is born. (laughs) But meal calendars and spontaneous acts of love and visitations and notes or words of encouragement are not just for births and hospital stays and deaths. They also are for the time of departure of a spouse or for the one living with a difficult spouse therefore the family who has lost an income, for the child who has dropped out of school, therefore the parents whose child is rejecting the faith, for the person giving long-term care to an infirmed loved one, therefore the high school or college student trying to do everything possible to hold on to faith on a hostile campus, therefore the parachurch worker struggling to raise or keep support it is for the professional being scoffed at, for daring. To proclaim the relevancy of theism for their work. It is for the one in ministry who has given all to the Lord and sees few converts or minimal external success. They or we all need to see those cross shaped towels waving with cheers like crazy. Each one of us has a personal project to cheer on everyone else. The confession of Christ is not enough when you are being persecuted. We are creatures who suffer discouragement, disappointment, doubt, and fear. Having head knowledge of the truths about Christ and his work are great. And having heart knowledge that makes us rejoice in good times also is very good. But there are times when the load of life is so much that some real stand-by-me help and some you-can-make-it words of exhortation are absolutely needed to make it so that someone does not give up on Christ and the church. So we each should have a vocabulary of encouragement. We should have scores of ways to say, I believe in you. You are significant. I am blessed by you. Your presence here is meaningful to me in this body. We need you. You are valuable to us. This congregation is better because you are here. Your gifts are a blessing to us. We will miss you if you leave. You are loved by God and us. You are terrific, beautiful, outstanding, awesome, incredible, treasured, and precious. And you are a gift from God for all of us. As Calvin again says, quote, extremely needed, therefore, by us all is the admonition to be stimulated to love and not to envy and not to separate from those whom God has joined to us, but to embrace with brotherly kindness all those who are united to us in faith. And surely it behooves us the more earnestly to cultivate unity unity as the more eagerly watchful Satan is, either to tear us by any means from the church or stealthily seduce us from it. And such would be the happy effect were no one to please himself too much and were all of us to preserve this one object, mutually to provoke one another to love, and to allow no emulation among ourselves but that of doing good works. Our love for every other person in the congregation must be as sacrificial as the work of Christ. It is going to cost us some pain to absorb the imperfections of all others and it is going to have to be active in prioritizing actions toward others and liking them. For we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Not one of us loves ourself without liking ourselves or being good to ourselves. Love overlooks and covers the faults of others. So in order to love everyone else in here, it means some of you are just going to have to learn to be kinder, more patient, less critical and less demanding of justice. The New Testament knows nothing of believers not liking but loving. It only knows of loving while overlooking the things one might not like. Every one of the people who we are called to stir to love and good works has the confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Verse 19. Jesus has purchased them just like he has purchased us. Everyone in the pew around you has Jesus as a high priest over them, mediating their salvation for them. What is there then not to love? What is there then not to like? See, I... I wish all of you could just be like me and put on some rose-colored glasses. I tried to find my Sergeant Peppers, but I couldn't. I actually went to Target last night and I did find some rose-colored glasses, but they cost too much just for one illustration. But I wish you could all be like me, and. And just put them on. Now, I really don't want you to put on such things, but metaphorically speaking, I do. Now, Pam says that I wear those things far too often, such that I really do not get a picture of just how evil some people really are. Everyone just always looks rosy to me. See, when everyone looks rosy, there's nothing not to love. Now, the thing that makes this proposal dangerous is that you and I could be slapping some veneer. See, I just put some saran wrap over, over the glasses here. We could be slapping some veneer over the Garderines demoniac or even Judas, and that wouldn't be good. And you, you justice types right now are all nodding your head saying, yeah, wake up, Pastor Eric. I know that's what you want to scream at me right now. I, I understand that. But what if I told you that we are not trying to put on rose-colored glasses, but we're trying to put on blood-colored glasses. What if they are really cross-shaped glasses, blood-soaked glasses, so that metaphorically speaking, we're looking at everyone through the blood of Christ, through the cross of Christ, through the death of Christ. Then I am not ignoring evil in front of me. Instead, I am preaching to it the gospel and covering it with the love of Christ. I am seeing everyone else in here bought by Christ just like I am, striving as much as I am under the same high priest that I find myself and looking forward to Jesus cracking the sky just as much as I am looking forward to Jesus cracking the sky. These verses, they also assume that a lack of such encouragement might express itself to ref- in a refusal to join other saints in worship. Because verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now, I know this is your favorite verse and mine when it comes to why believers gather together on Sunday and they're not supposed to do Bedside baptists or Pillow Presbyterian or any other form of so-called church that is just viewing and streaming as a spiritual diet and is not actually here present with the ordinary means of grace and serving and being served. But this verse actually is a call to the Hebrews to stop hiding away from the gathering of believers, which would have been viewed by many outsiders as hostile to the empire. It is a call for every one of us to grab hold of everyone else around us and say, you are not giving up on Christ and his church. You are not leaving all of us and you are not going to forsake God. We are going to make it to the presence of God together. The gospel message runs all through this passage. We saw it first in verses 19 through 20 with the blood of Jesus. That reference brings forward the death of Christ for his own. And the resurrection is also evident in that he is a priest forever, according to Hebrews, living now because death could not hold him down. He is risen and he is reigning in heaven. The gospel also is in verses 21 through 22. Having died for us, he sanctifies us, cleansing us from the things that would defile us and keep us from entering the presence of of God. We are not sanctifying ourselves, as also is evident in last week's passage. Instead, we were acted upon as our hearts were sprinkled clean and our bodies were washed with pure water. Third, the gospel appears again because he remains faithful in verse 23 and we do not lose our salvation. Our salvation rests on one who made a covenant and an oath with Abraham and then made a decree and an oath with the son. He decreed that the enemies of the son would be made into a plush and comfortable ottoman for his feet. And he swore to the son that the son would be a priest in the Melchizedekian order, the line from which priests have no end of days. So Jesus can keep being faithful without end. The gospel depends upon his faithfulness. And the gospel also runs to the end of the verses. It's the end of the good news. The end of the gospel of Jesus is that the one who died and rose again for us, who sanctifies and keeps us, will return to get us. So our choice to have given our lives to him will not be found to have been in vain. On this passage, therefore, on the front end of it, you might be able to sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And on the other end of the passage, you might be able to say, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul, but not just with my soul or your individual soul, but the souls of everyone around us. When it comes to getting into the presence of God, saying, I might not make it, or I might not get there with you, are not options for the body. No one gets left behind. No one who is struggling gets left behind. No one gets to say, I'm leaving God now and I'm not coming back. No, we grab hold of them because Jesus is a son and priest for us with a body, cleansing us so that not I and not you, but we, so that we, we, we all get through the difficulties of this Christian life. And stand in the Holy of Holies before the presence of our God together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we so thank you that you have made us part of a body. A body empowered by the Spirit. A body formed by the death of Jesus and his resurrection and his session now in heaven. A body that hopes for you to come quickly, and we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. A body that knows that you are Lord and Savior, that you are king forever. Thank you for fitting us into a body when you saved us. Help us be individual, cheering sections for all the other members of this body so that in good times and bad, when people are struggling or when it's peacetime, God, we together are striving for the holy of holies. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you that through your body, you have made a way for us to get to God. Bless us now with your grace and mercy and spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.